tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to The Feast, journeys through time in search of a good meal. When it comes to food, we humans are a picky bunch. It's an age-old adage among chefs that we first eat with our eyes. Sure, something may be good for us or even tasty, but we seem hardwired to satisfy our eyes before we satisfy our stomachs. Of course, there are obvious exceptions. When you're hungry enough, looks matter little. The first person, for example, to try to eat lobster must have been pretty desperate, or maybe was on a dare. But a general rule seems to be, make a dish look pretty enough, and you can get anyone to try it. But are looks ever in danger of overshadowing taste? The rise of food porn, as it's often called, has been considered both a bane and boost to chefs the world over. What started as simple parsley garnishes or an occasional lemon wedge to add a little color to a plate has turned into an all-out battle to dress up dinner. With a camera attached to almost every smartphone, each meal, whether you're cooking for yourself or dining at a three Michelin star restaurant, can be shared with the world. Food bloggers have invested thousands in camera equipment to showcase their recipes online. Many restaurants, who once tried to stem the invasion of cell phones into their elegant dining rooms, quickly shifted policies once they realized their diners were eagerly snapping and sharing pics of their food, providing free advertising to millions. Entire television shows are dedicated to making visually stunning edible creations, cakes shaped like everything from the Eiffel Tower to your lovable golden retriever. Even the drinking world has gotten in on the visual game. From the masterful juggling of drinks tumblers to whimsical garnishes, cocktail connoisseurs have learned that people don't just eat with their eyes first, they drink too. What has been called the performance of food is everywhere. Heston Blumenthal's Fat Duck in England famously presents diners with a beach scene on their plates, complete with earbuds providing the sound of crashing waves. Some restaurants take the performative visual even further. At Alinea in Chicago, diners can watch chefs literally paint the scene on their dinner table as part of the dessert course. Although television and the internet have allowed us to share these visually stunning food creations with the world, dressing food up is nothing new. And if any historical era could rival the foams and dry eyes of the 21st century gastronomic scene, it would have to be the Baroque period, where we're heading today. A period of aesthetic excess in which medieval and renaissance feasting traditions blended with increasingly rigid dining etiquette. It is during this era, approximately the 17th and early 18th centuries, when the first truly celebrity chefs made their names. 
The bounty of international trade, bringing to Europe both new foodstuffs back from the Americas and spices from the Middle East and Asia, along with a competitive spirit among the noble and royal houses, combined to treat feasting, more than ever before, as a showcase for wealth and power. Today, we're heading to the heart of this feasting tradition, to Rome in 1655, where the opulence and exclusivity of Baroque dining ran straight into the crevices of a rapidly changing social, political, and religious world. The Pope's feastmaker had a problem. The Pope, His Holiness Alexander VII, had made it clear that he wished to throw a banquet for the latest and certainly most public convert to the Catholic faith, Christina of Sweden. Now the Pope, being the Pope, was used to having feasts for all kinds of visiting dignitaries, ambassadors, generals, and certainly kings. But the Pope, being the Pope, usually only threw such lavish dinners for men, and, if truly necessary, their accompanying wives, or perhaps an occasional mistress. Throwing an extravagant banquet for a woman was already out of the ordinary, but it could be reasoned propriety could be set aside for royalty. But that was another problem. Christina of Sweden wasn't royalty. Or at least, not anymore. True, she was the eldest daughter of Sweden's former king, Gustav Adolphus, as his named successor. Her coronation in 1650 at the age of 24 had more or less gone swimmingly. On the surface, all had seemed well. A member of the royal family was on the throne, a dedicated follower of the state Protestant faith of Lutheranism, and there were hints that the queen was even engaged to be married, uh, to another royal no less, her cousin Charles. Yes, in 1650, all had been well. But even if people didn't know it yet, clouds were gathering. Rumors of Christina's troubling tendencies were starting to make themselves known. Her religious views had increasingly worried the strict Lutherans of Sweden. Christina's personal habit of discussing religion with Catholic priests had started to affect Sweden's international policy. She seemed keen to extend trade relations with Catholic kingdoms. More and more, fears of a Catholic invasion percolated in the minds of the Swedish population. And disturbingly to the Swedish parliament, Christina had seemed little inclined to soothe the nerves of her anxious subjects. And then there was the matter of marriage. Although she had fought hard to ensure her fiancé Charles was next in the line of succession, she seemed little interested in actually marrying the man, or any man for that matter. Instead, she kept close company with her lady-in-waiting, Ebba Spar, a relationship many assumed was romantic. Christina's habit of dressing in male clothing, often taken to wearing high-collared jackets while riding, was not altogether welcomed by the highly structured rules of 17th-century etiquette. So, perhaps inevitably, in just a few short years following her coordination, both Christina and Sweden were more than willing to draw a curtain on her short, turbulent reign. She formally abdicated her throne on June 6, 1654, which was to be succeeded by her one-time fiancé and first cousin, Charles. What followed was a kind of grand tour of Europe for Christina, heading to the capitals of kingdoms where she was wined and dined, treated as a kind of unicorn, a queen who had willingly given up her crown, not amid the clamor of riots or the threat of invasion, but through calm discussion 
and parliamentary debate. It seemed a stark contrast to current events in other countries, where unpopular kings had to fear for their heads. Charles I of England had just learned this lesson by losing his not five years earlier. The intended final destination of Christina's grand tour had always been what she considered to be her true spiritual home, Rome. Her arrival into the Papal States in November of 1655 launched the celebration of the century in the Italian kingdoms. Carnivals, parades, operas, ballets, and of course, feasts, accompanied her formal baptism into the Catholic faith. From the moment she set foot onto Italian soil, the great lords of Italy competed for the opportunity to host Christina, whom they would continue to call queen until the end of her life. And even in the 17th century, no one knew how to throw a party quite like the Italians. Noble families interested in holding ever more elaborate banquets had helped to raise the prestige of those employed to cook and plan the festivities. In Italy, one position took on this responsibility more than any other, the scalco, what translates roughly as the feast maker. Head of the entire kitchen, the scalco organized and managed everything associated with meals. Of course, this involved the day-to-day demands of feeding a noble household, but it was the banquet that tested any scalco's skill and imagination. He would be responsible for not only coming up with a menu and ordering the food, but also commissioning elaborate set pieces to decorate dining halls, even hiring actors and dancers to entertain the dinner guests before, during, and after the meal. Clearly, holding a Baroque banquet was a complex affair. Descriptions of feasts frequently list more than 80 dishes, in addition to glamorous entertainments that could mix in elements of theater, opera, and ballet. In terms of what was on the table, elite dining had moved beyond the massive meat-laden feasts of the medieval era. The nobility and royalty of the Baroque age sought sophistication in their meals. Appreciating good food was compared to good taste in things like painting or poetry. This new approach to dining went hand-in-hand with an increasingly rigid set of behavior amongst the upper classes. So-called courtesy books, a genre which had become popular during the Renaissance, provided rigid rules on how to act, often largely in relationship to the dining table. New rules of etiquette disdained the greedy, undiscerning eater. A courtesy book from 1615 by the Italian Ottaviano Robasco insisted that, quote, The civil gentleman does not devour like the wolf, nor does he chomp vigorously like a goat, nor gnaw on bones like a dog. Instead, Baroque society encouraged the diner to appreciate a dish from an intellectual or aesthetic point of view, emphasizing the diversity of ingredients or the expert balance of spices, or even, frequently, the ornamentation of a dish, the delicacy or complexity of how it was presented. Food was art and was to be made and appreciated as such. Understandably, to create such artistic banquets required the organizational skills of a general. Successful feastmakers, those employed in the more prominent noble houses in Italy, soon took to writing handbooks on kitchen management, outlining their battle strategies for banqueting. One such handbook, known as the Arte di Ben Cucinare, or The Art of Good Cooking, was written by one of the most famous scarco of his time, Bartolomeo Stefani who recounted his experience throwing not one, 
but three lavish feasts to honor Queen Christina's entrance into Italy. Stefani worked for the noble Gonzagas of Mantua, and the family spared no expense for the meals. Held variously on the banks of a river, a medieval town square, and finally at the ducal castle in Mantua itself, each of these meals were opulent dinners, but the last meal, held on November 27th, was Stefani's crowning achievement. Held in the Duke's opulent Hall of Virtues in his country castle, where intricately painted forest scenes set a pastoral setting for the banquet, Stefani presented the guests with no fewer than 57 different dishes, followed by 16 varieties of desserts. In each part of the meal, Stefani's cooks and kitchen staff offered complex tableaus of food, everything decorated within an inch of its life. Pastry cases were shaped to resemble the heraldic arms of Queen Christina, a sheaf of corn surrounded by lions. To complement the bucolic setting of the meal, Stefani incorporated nature into every dish, such as constructing wild birds with wings outstretched, made entirely out of flaky pastry. For the 17th century diner, the visuals of a dish were just as important, if not more so, than how something tasted. Although meat still featured prominently on the table, roasts of wild game, food often still restricted to the elite by law, were expected sights in Baroque feasts. But increasingly, cooks teased and played with these medieval norms. Nothing was necessarily what it seemed on the Baroque table. Stefani recounts the details of one of his magnificent creations served to Christina at Mantua. What initially appeared to be an entire pheasant, stuffed, marinated, and roasted on a spit, was actually made entirely of marzipan, a sugary almond paste favored by both medieval and Renaissance cooks. Surrounding this sugary bird were flowers made from quince jelly and gilded to gleam silver or gold on the plate. Sugar had been a sought-after delicacy on European tables for centuries. Sugarcane imported from the Middle East and Asia had quickly found its place in European cuisine. Yet trade with these areas was notoriously unreliable and often could be cut off entirely. European contact with the Americas in the late 1400s provided an unexpected new source of the material, one that quickly replaced the old reliance on Eastern trade routes. Europe had discovered its sweet tooth. But cooks quickly discovered sugar, still a high-end luxury, was also easily moldable and quickly became the favorite material for table decorations in the Renaissance and Baroque periods. Displaying sugar, not meant to be eaten but only admired, was the height of conspicuous consumption, and dining tables soon groaned under the growing weight of sugarwork sculptures. Called variously subtleties in England, or triumphi, or triumphs in Italy, sugar sculptures played a large role in the performance and extravagance that was Renaissance and Baroque. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. 
Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Broke dining. Constructed from molds, these sugar sculptures often cover the table, sometimes taking up more room than the food itself. Never intended to be eaten, Triumphi were to be admired for the skill of the decoration and, of course, the expense of their production. The Triumpho centerpiece for Christina's dinner in Mantua was a monument to both classical mythology and Christian themes, as well, of course, the guest of honor, Christina herself. A giant sugary Mount Olympus sat on the table, combined with what Stefani called a Christian altar of faith. At the top of this mountain, two cherubs, those ever-present standards of Baroque style, bore aloft a crown bearing Christina's coat of arms. To complement this extravagance, on each corner of the table stood what appeared to be vases of oranges, orange trees, and Corinthian ionic columns, all constructed out of gelatin or sugar. As if this weren't enough, Stefani had also constructed small statues, also made from sugar, representing various classical heroes, fantastical animals, and famous men from history. Baroque diners loved the art of Triumpho so much that master sugar sculptors were often praised in madrigals or poetry. The result of Stefani's work that evening in Mantua was the encapsulation of everything a 17th century nobleman could want in a banquet. Vast quantities of food, all decorated in order to spark lively conversation and thoughtful reflection. While delicately sipping pheasant soup under Christina's sugary coat of arms, a guest could study the likenesses of Caesar, Hercules, or Charlemagne, epitomizing the Baroque ideal of nourishing the intellect while also nourishing the body. Stefani and the Duke of Mantua's meal was a resounding success, a wonderful start to Christina's journey through Italy to Rome. But somewhere in the Vatican, the worries of another Scarco had just begun. Christina was due to arrive in Rome on December 23rd, two days before Christmas and the entire city turned out to watch the parade of festivities arranged on the new convert to Catholicism. Accompanied by ceremonial cannon fire, knights and soldiers marched through the streets, along with the queen's retinue of pages and ladies-in-waiting. Speeches by local dignitaries reminded the crowd of the queen's dedication to the faith through adversity and welcomed her as a child of Rome. The day had been proclaimed as a public holiday, so the population of Rome eagerly turned out to watch the arrival of the Northern Queen. While Pope Alexander waited for her in the Vatican, Christina was presented with his gifts in the courtyard of the Villa Giulia by papal legates. Silver statues and ornaments, along with a beautiful sedan chair, coach, and litter. No detail had been overlooked. All the nails in these gifts, for example, had been specially inscribed with Christina's coat of arms. Christina accepted these gifts graciously, but chose to ride the final leg of her journey to St. Peter's Basilica on a mule, dressed in simple gray. She was given apartments in the Vatican, 
an unusual offer for a woman, and there she remained for the next few days, not appearing in public except for attending Mass on Christmas Day in a special box prepared for her by the papacy, located close to the high altar. There she was formally baptized, choosing as her new Catholic name, Alexandra, in honor of the Pope. The relative solemnity of Christina's public arrival at the Vatican masked the frantic preparations underway for the papal banquet to be held on December 26. This would be Pope Alexander and Christina's first public social appearance, and it was essential to get each and every labyrinthine rule of Baroque social etiquette right to the letter. And thus the papal feastmaker's problem. Holding a regular Baroque banquet was a tightrope walk of navigating social and political relations. Where one sat, or even if one sat, the plate or utensils offered, all were very obvious signs as to how a host felt about each particular guest. In many ways, a Baroque feast was one giant performance piece. Royals or nobles would dine amongst themselves on elevated tables, while hundreds of others looked on, not even considered of high enough status to eat at the same time. They had been simply given the opportunity to watch their social or political superiors eat. It wasn't unusual for banquets to showcase a single person eating, while hundreds merely looked on. And for a papal feast, well, it became even more complicated. Because, of course, when dining at the Vatican, the Pope was below no one. It was rare to let anyone eat at the same time as the Pope, let alone at the same table. But Pope Alexander VII had insisted on inviting Christina to a banquet to celebrate her conversion. But for the papal Scarco, this presented nothing less than a social etiquette nightmare. How was he to organize a papal banquet celebrating someone who is not only a woman, but also no longer a reigning monarch? In any other circumstance, such a banquet would be out of the question. A non-royal and a woman wouldn't even be offered a chair, let alone be presented as the guest of honor. But the Scalco couldn't very well insult the Pope's personal guest. What to do? It's actually a shame that the name of this ingenious feastmaker has been lost to history, because the banquet he was able to throw on December 26th of 1655 was a masterpiece, cleverly threading the needle of Baroque dining customs. The Scalco's plans for the banquet were a study in compromise. Christina would be allowed to dine at the same time as His Holiness, but on a different table, set a few feet away and several inches lower than the Pope's. The Pope himself would be seated under a magnificent canopy emblazoned with the papal crest. Now this feature was common in banquets featuring royalty, a public way of demonstrating who was part of the royal household. When dining in public, the Pope similarly sat under such a canopy, often with any visiting royal dignitary. But because Christina was only a former royal, it was considered improper for her to sit fully underneath it. And so another compromise was devised. Queen Christina would sit half under the canopy, her chair placed precisely so that she was both half under and half outside the papal crest. We'll put up some contemporary illustrations of the banquet on our website, so you can see this interesting arrangement for yourself. Without a doubt, Christina's new halfway position at dinner was an ingenious solution. 
But this only solved one of about a thousand questions that negotiated social etiquette. Now that the Scalco had figured out where Christina was going to sit, the next major question was what she was going to sit on. Like everything else in Baroque dining, just being allowed to sit down was a sign of status. But what kind of chair you sat down on communicated even more. According to Vatican custom, high-backed armchairs were presented for only visiting rulers. Lower nobles or lesser royals were usually given chairs without arms or with lower backs, sometimes barely better than a stool. But the Scalco feared that such a humble chair would insult Christina. She was the guest of honor, after all. So again, he had to think creatively. So he turned to the chief architect of the Vatican, a man who had regularly been called in to advise papal staff on elements of style and architecture. Although used to working in marble or bronze, and currently at work entirely redoing the piazza in front of St. Peter's Basilica, the chief architect was also a known fan of banquets and seemed eager to help out with preparations. The name of this architect? Gian Lorenzo Bernini, who many consider to be the founding father of Baroque design. So in addition to his recently completed statue of the Ecstasy of St. Teresa and marble bust of Cardinal Richelieu, Bernini was now being asked to build a simple chair. But being Bernini, what a chair. Navigating the rules of papal dining, he produced a perfect midpoint, ensuring that neither the Pope's nor Christina's pride would be damaged. Instead of the high-backed armchair given to royalty, or the low-backed stool for inferior guests, Bernini produced a chair perfectly in the middle, one that was not armed nor armless, but with little gentle protrusions or stubs on each side, giving the bare suggestion of arms. With papal pride and royal feelings preserved, Bernini turned to other, perhaps grander, tasks for the banquet. He was also responsible for the major sugar works, or triumphi, that evening, creating a massive, sugary phoenix and sun-entwined. Christina supposedly loved the image so much, she had a medal made of its likeness. Christina and Bernini reportedly became good friends after her move to Rome, and when the Grand Master died in 1681, in his will, Bernini bequeathed to her a number of his works. All perhaps thanks to a single dinner in December of 1655. That night, the table at the banquet groaned under the weight of the various elaborate dishes made for the Pope and Christina, much more than any two people could ever hope to consume. Aspics, jellies, and blancmanges trembled on the table, while the choir of St. Peter's sang continuously throughout the meal. All the while, hundreds of visitors watched the unusual sight of the Pope and the deposed Queen dine. Following the meal, Christina was presented formally with her new home in Rome, another gift from the papacy, the Palazzo Farnese, considered to be the most imposing palace of its time, which Michelangelo had helped design and decorate. In the coming years, Christina would be responsible for holding numerous events in Rome, ballets, operas, and carnivals. Her Vatican dinner was also not to be her last. She would outlive Alexander VII and be invited to dine again with the new pope, this time Clement IX. Again, Bernini would be asked to supply the sugar work and decorations for the meal. Christina lived in Rome until the end of her life in 1689. 
the Pope personally arranged her body to lie in state for four days before being buried in the Vatican Grotto, one of only three women in history to be given such an honor. Today, Queen Christina of Sweden is remembered as a woman who encouraged intellectual and artistic circles throughout Europe, but particularly in her native Sweden and her adopted home in Rome. Her early friendship with people like René Descartes and her later associations with Bernini, not to mention the numerous noblemen, royals, and papal dignitaries who frequently graced her door, made her a figure to be reckoned with in the 17th century. Christina's infamous sweet tooth meant that she was swimming in sugar throughout her life. Popes and kings would regularly send her sweets and pastries. And it was in the banquet where Christina's continued power was evident, given the seat of honor continuously beside popes and kings. Such dinners revealed Christina's continued, if unexpected, influence. A woman who had relinquished a formal political title but remained at the forefront of the European stage for the rest of her life. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. A big thank you this week to Dr. Karen Lloyd of Stony Brook University for suggesting the topic of Queen Christina and her time in Rome. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners. If you would like to support The Feast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or on SoundCloud. You can also find information on how to contribute to The Feast via Patreon on our website, www.thefeastpodcast.org. We should also have some very snazzy new t-shirts featuring The Feast logos available very soon, so those folks who do contribute on Patreon can look for those, or you will be able to buy them directly from us on our website. And if you have been cooking any of the recipes from our previous episodes, we'd love to see them. We are on Instagram, so please post and share your pictures there with the feast underscore podcast. So we'll see all of you back in two weeks when we have another meal from the past for you. So until then, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. NBC.